3: This is Rohini Kurup with an episode from the Archives for Sunday, August 22, 2021. All eyes are on Afghanistan this week after the Afghan government fell to the Taliban last weekend. The Biden administration has faced intense criticism in the past week for the United States' chaotic evacuation efforts, and particularly for neglecting American partners in Afghanistan. Some have called it a moral failing. It's a good time to revisit an episode of the Lawfare podcast from March 2020 where Jack Goldsmith sat down with Joseph Nye, professor emeritus and former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, to talk about U.S. presidents and foreign policy through the lens of morality. I'm Michaela Fogel, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 7th, 2020. We ask a lot of questions about foreign policy on this podcast. Why do certain countries make certain decisions? What are the interests of the players in question? What are the consequences and, of course, the legality of foreign policy choices? In a new book, Joseph Nye, professor emeritus and former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, asks another question about foreign policy. Do morals matter? Jack Goldsmith sat down with Nye to discuss his new book, Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. They discussed the ethical and theoretical factors by which Nye judged each president before going through many of the cases he focuses on in the book. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 518, Joseph Nye on Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump.
2: So uh, why a book about foreign policy through a moral lens? It seems like There's a conventional wisdom, at least in some circles, that morality and foreign policy don't mix.
4: Yeah, that is why I wrote the book, because basically the conventional wisdom in the field of international relations is that it's all national interest. Interests bake the cake, and then politicians come along and sprinkle a little moralistic icing on top to make it look pretty. And my impression from both in reading history and from being in government was that that if you had that cynical view, you're going to get history wrong. So I wanted to do two things in the book. One was to go over historical cases of the 14 presidents and show cases where you'd get history wrong if you had that cynical view, and uh, show that in some cases, actually, morality of the president was part of the ingredients, not just the icing. And then having done that, Uh, I wanted to say, okay, if it's important, then what's the right way to think about it? So part of the book is just sort of history, positivist history, and part of it is normative theory. All right, if you think it's important or if you've shown it's important, then what's the right way to think about it? Right.
2: On the ingredient part, so you mean when you say that you need to understand the role of morality and foreign policy to understand history, just to make sure I understand you mean that moral factors are actually doing work in foreign policy decision-making? That's right.
4: And the best example of this is, uh, or the easiest example to grasp, is Harry Truman and nuclear weapons. In 1945, Truman said, I didn't lose sleep over dropping a bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the reason is that it was we didn't know a lot about nuclear weapons. And as General Groves of the Manhattan Project said uh, Truman's like a boy who's put on the back of a toboggan when it's already going downhill. Would have been remarkable for him to have stopped it. But what's interesting is he didn't drop a third bomb. And he said the reason, which we had, he said the reasons I didn't want to kill many more children. And but more important, in 1950, when he was losing the Korean War or stalemating it, and the Chinese had driven us back down the peninsula. General MacArthur said, if you don't want to lose this, you have to give me authority to drop 25 to 40 bombs on Chinese cities. Nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons, weapons, atomic bombs. And uh, Truman said no, even though he knew it was going to destroy his presidency. And uh, part of the reason was prudential that the Allies were saying don't do it. But a large part of it was that same thing. He just didn't want to kill that many more women and children.
2: And so that's a great example. What is an example of when moral factors inform foreign policy and what we came to see as a negative way?
4: Well, stick with Truman for a minute. Truman decided to go into Korea in June of 1950 because of his moralistic response to uh, the North Koreans crossing the 38th parallel, which he said reminded him of Hitler ending the Rhineland, and it was immoral and they shouldn't get away with it. But his Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, had earlier in the year said Korea was outside our defense perimeter. So a rationalist, realist analysis said, don't worry about it. But the reason that Chumming worried about it was a moralistic reaction. Okay. So your book,
2: we're going to get into how you break down and analyze what morality and foreign policy means, but you have an interesting connection between the United States, between morality playing a fairly prominent role in U.S. foreign policy, and the notion of American exceptionalism.
4: Well, American exceptionalism is uh, the default position for Americans. Yeah. Because we're good, what you do is good. And, you know, ask a Filipino in 1900. Too whether uh, being waterboarded by an American is good or not, or ask a Mexican who's lost half his territory about uh, American exceptionalism, we we tend to think that because we're good, what we do is good. Uh, I happen to think that, on average, over a long enough time, we do more good than evil. But doesn't mean that each particular action is good because we're Americans. So when people think about morals. They tend to use American exceptionalism as a, you know, either because we did it, it's good, or because we say we have a freedom agenda, it's good, or because it turns out okay, it's good. And to me, that's all shallow moral reasoning.
2: So how do you so how do you think about moral reasoning in foreign policy? I mean, there are different types of moral reasoning.
4: I I try to draw from just war theory, uh, what I call three dimensional. Morality, which is you look at the motives, the means, and the consequences. If you go all the way back to just war, which of course is not just a Catholic doctrine, but which is incorporated in international humanitarian law and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, uh, you have to have a just cause, you have to have moral means, which means discrimination and proportionality, and you have to have a reasonable prospect of success. And so motives, means, and consequences, you have to balance all three of those to judge the morality of an action. And it's not enough just to say, for example, moral clarity. For example, Ari Fleischer justified George W. Bush's invasion of the rock on the grounds that Bush had extraordinary moral clarity. That's nonsense. If I do something uh, with with pronouncing good motives— but you have horrible consequences, uh, that's not a moral action. So I'm trying to get away from that simplistic... What
2: about the flip? What if there are... I can't remember if there's any example of this in the book, but I can imagine... I'll give you a hypothetical. Uh, Let's say that Trump's tearing up of the Iran deal, which whatever you think of the intent, Mm -hmm. the means weren't good, and the Soleimani killing seemed um, rash and not very deliberate... But let's just imagine a world in which those turn out to set in motion a series of events that leads to a revolution in Iran or a breakthrough in Middle Eastern affairs. Let's say he gets lucky. So we might judge that a foreign policy success, but it's not moral because of the intent and means. Is that the way?
4: Well, let's take the Soleimani part of it. There's a good argument to be made that we needed to restore deterrence of Iran, that Trump's relatively weak responses to the shooting down of our drone and uh, earlier missile attacks, uh, left the Iranians thinking he could get away with a lot. And so the question is, has Iran been deterred? It appears at this stage, at least, to be yes. We don't know. question to judge the morality of the action as a whole is not just the consequence. Could he have done it by other means? For example, sinking a uh, an Iranian warship in the Gulf, which is a pure military target, mm-hmm instead of doing it in a way in which he revived the uh, practice of assassination. And it's not clear that we wanted to break that norm in the sense that uh, what happens when Pompeo goes to Baghdad? Do we really want to revive the idea that killing a a high official of a government with whom we're not formally at war in a third country is okay? I think Not. And the other thing was in stretching the meaning of just, uh, well, if, uh, you know, of self-defense, uh, which should be uh, related to imminent threat, and where it clearly wasn't an imminent threat. Uh, there was revenge. There was a fear of some indeterminate future threat, but it certainly was an imminent threat. And do we really want to stretch that uh, meaning of, of self-defense under Article 51, of the UN Charter to the point where it becomes meaningless. So you could say that among the consequences you have to consider are the consequences for the system of rules. So, you know, the philosophers talk about act consequentialism and rule consequentialism. Act consequentialism is you take the exact act, you killed this guy in Baghdad, and the Iranians were deterred thurt- therefore for good. Uh, rule consequentialists said you did damage to a system of rules which, which, there were several that you were very important, and you might have been able to do this by another means. So that's why I would say that it's not a moral okay. act.
2: Okay, good. Um, so you have this—not a checklist. You call it a scorecard. Scorecard. Right. Sorry. Right. <laughs> so and this very unacademic. Six, six, well, no, it's it's good. <laughs> it's a six-factor scorecard that you use to basically, basically six criteria under which you judge the morality of presidential action and foreign policy. So if we could just quickly walk through each of the criteria and, um, tell us, you know, why it's relevant. Well, on, moral vision is the first.
4: Yeah. On the moral vision, it seems to me that most presidents have a, they state things that are good. I mean, it's be very rare in a democracy for a leader to officially state his bad intentions, but, uh, the statement of what you're trying to accomplish is important, but then the question, next question is what about your emotional intelligence and how your emotional needs twist that so that your actual motives are quite different from what you stated? To so, give you an example, uh, both Johnson and Kennedy uh, said that they were uh, aiming to preserve the South Vietnamese from totalitarian communism, which I think was a good intention but the question of when when you stay in there and lead to having 565,000 american troops there and 58,000 american deaths that raises a different question and mcgeorge bundy once said that kennedy cared his motive was to appear smart and uh, so he thinks, Bundy thought Kennedy would have gotten out if he'd been re-elected in 64 in, uh, instead of assassinated. He said Johnson's motive was not to appear a coward. And because he was so afraid of appearing a coward, even though he had grave doubts about the war and knew it was destroying his great society, he went and escalated, as he did... Because he couldn't face up to, he didn't have the emotional intelligence to face up to being thought of as a coward.
2: So that's an important point about the role of character, presidential character in foreign policy decision making.
4: So you're, oh, I call it emotional intelligence in this case. I mean, can you master your deep emotional needs, in Johnson's case, insecurity? And he couldn't. And that twisted his, his intentions so that the motives were rather mixed. Okay, prudence? Prudence is important because it relates to this point in just war theory of a reasonable prospect of success. And if you are not prudent, you can set extraordinarily glamorous, idealistic uh, goals. But if they are imprudent goals, then you can lead people to disastrous consequences. If I say, let's uh, let's walk across this tightrope, it might be wonderful. We could walk across the tightrope across the street out there, but I know damn well that neither of us going to make it. And when we fall down in front of a truck on the street and are killed, uh, that imprudent goal that I set, which led you to walk across there and fall down and get killed, that's, that's immoral.
2: What leads presidents? I mean, presidents are exquisitely attuned to consequences and political repercussions, what leads them to act imprudently?
4: Well, I think acting imprudently often goes with uh, two things, ideological blindness, or being blinded by, this was where morals can have a bad effect, Mm -hmm. and uh, also um, what I call lack of contextual IQ which is a little different from emotional IQ. Emotional IQ is to manage your own emotional needs. Contextual IQ means to appraise a situation very carefully, or as a lawyer would put it, I guess, to do due diligence. And when you don't do due diligence and have bad consequences, I think uh, in the law it's called culpable negligence. It is.
2: So the third factor is use of force. And you focus on... As a, a lawyer, what I think of as the use in bellow factors, proportionality, distinction, things like that. but you, And you measure President by the extent to which he used basically proportionate action in, in achieving ends.
4: Yes. Again, the the principle of discrimination, of not uh, attacking non-combatants, is, has very ancient roots. I mean, if you go back to the Bible, and thou shalt not kill... And Augustine, uh, wrestling with this in the fourth century, you know, he said, if you, if you don't defend yourself, good will perish from the earth, uh, and only the evil will remain. But once the threat's not imminent, the soldier puts down his gun and holds up his hands, you can no longer kill him. There's not the, the imminent threat. And so noncombatants, starting with the soldier just surrendered all the way back to the women and children back home, are illegitimate targets. Um, now, there is collateral damage and double effect and so forth, but, but there's still a p- basic principle that's important. The proportion, though, is also important. So if I say, look, there's a terrorist in that apartment building, and I'm going to have an F 16 drop a, or a drone drop a bomb, a big bomb, on that building, and it turns out, yes, you killed the terrorist, but you also killed 73 families. That's disproportional, and so those two things, discrimination proportion, have come down to us from these early origins, uh, from Saint Augustine down through international humanitarian law and the Jiva Conventions, and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and they they remain important means.
2: So, but I wonder why, when you're talking about use of force, there's another whole set of questions. That that's what we think of in, as lawyers as right. the rules that govern warfare, the right. rules in warfare. There's a whole other set of questions that's also part of the just law, just war tradition about when it's appropriate to go to war in the first place. Right. And you didn't discuss that as much in the book. And I'm wondering especially about humanitarian intervention, which is both legally controversial domestically and internationally. So how, how does that slice of the, the war?
4: Well, I didn't spend a lot of time on the just cause of war. I sort of amalgamated that more into this question of intentions and, right. and motives. Uh, and because I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I mean, should you have done more in Rwanda to prevent, should Clinton have done more in Rwanda to prevent the genocide? I think you make an argument, yes, but it didn't have to be sending the 82nd Airborne. It could have been making efforts to get African troops to back up the UN peacekeepers. You wouldn't have saved all the Tutsis, but you could have saved some.
2: Okay, the next factor is liberal concerns, respect for institutions at home and international institutions in general now many people think so you're concluding this as a criteria of judgment many people think that so why don't you explain that well then, i what then. i
4: what i'm trying to do there is to say that when if if you start in analysis of an international foreign policy decision, you should start with realism which is that the you know that states there's no higher government you have to have self-help states have to take care of themselves my problem is that most realists start there but they stop there I happen to believe you should start there but I think you should go on and ask can liberalism add something and can cosmopolitanism add something and my answer is it shouldn't revoke realism but we shouldn't ignore it just because it's an add-on so to speak and I turn there primarily to John Rawls uh, who is different in his liberalism than, let's say, Woodrow Wilson. Wilson wanted us to promote democracy and to set up international institutions to create a different framework for international politics and provide global public goods. Uh, I think we should primarily focus on the second, and that's what Rawls does. He talks about treating other people, uh, not whether they're exactly democratic or not, but how much we can respect their own cultures, their own institutions, without undercutting our realistic needs. So that's that's where the liberalism comes in. It's not full-throated Wilsonian right. liberalism.
2: But does it, does, does it assume that extant institutions, international institutions are just and we need to adhere to them?
4: Well, some are and some aren't. I mean, there's some that are, are quite useless and there's some that are quite important. What I argue is that there are, are things called global public goods, which are things like uh, freedom of the seas or a relatively open international trading system or a relatively stable international monetary system and so forth where it's good for us, but it can be good for others as well, and that global public goods, like any public goods, are provided when the largest country takes the lead, because otherwise if smaller countries will free ride. And in that sense, the institutions that Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower created after 1945 in stark contrast to the way uh, they acted in 1930s, American Presidents acted in the 1930s, have created something which is good for us, but it's good for others as well. So that's where I see the role of institutions. Now you can argue, for example, is the World Trade Organization, good or bad, and Danny Roderick or others would say, you know, it it hasn't done good for everybody in the country and we've been too purist about trade theory and so forth. I think that's right. And you might want to need change in those uh, institutions and not just assume that because they exist, they're good. But um, if you take something like global climate change which is a a, being able to manage it is a global public good i think they're uh, trying to develop institutions is is crucial and the americans have to take a lead i mean we in china are 40 percent of the uh, production of, uh, of co2 and neither of us can solve that alone
1: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time you actually can create more time for yourself it's by figuring out what's important to you making that a priority and that is where therapy can help you it can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire, and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I wanna say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And DeleteMe is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent Lawfare,
2: 20. Two more categories, and then we'll get to some cases. Uh, The first is fiduciary. Was the leader a good trustee of
4: the long-term interest of the United States? Yeah, I mean, in a democracy, uh, we don't want leaders who just act pure. Uh, We want them to be trustees for our interest. So, I mean, the reason I wouldn't vote for a pacifist for president, even though I might want a pacifist for a roommate or a spouse, Mm Uh, is because I would expect her, if I voted for her, to be willing to use troops to defend our interests in certain circumstances that fit the criteria I've described. So being a good fiduciary is a necessary condition for a democratic leader. But it's not sufficient. There are other things I want as well.
2: And the last one is educational. I and mean, a lot of things are included in that.
4: Well, that's, that's the, the question of whether the president is creating a framework in which people can act in a a way which is broader than just their narrowest self-interest. The issue of uh, self-interest or national interest is not whether we should have America first or not, but how do you define American interests? And there, for example, I think Trump has had a a very bad educational effect because he's been teaching us and the rest of the world that you think of it in very narrow transactional terms. And if you look back at uh, what I call the founders of the post-45 era, uh, FDR, Truman and Eisenhower, they defined it in very broad terms. And so the national interest wasn't transactional. Best way I think I've heard somebody putting this is George Schultz, when he said, look, foreign policy is like growing a garden. It's not like a commercial transaction. And you have to be a long-term patient gardener. And for Donald Trump, it's just the opposite. Each transaction, every tub on its own bottom, to coin a phrase, and you look at it in very, very narrow terms. And if you go back to Bob Axelrod's pioneering work on the evolution of cooperation, he showed us, yes, Prisoner's Dilemma is a zero-sum game if you play it once, each transaction on its own bottom. But if you play iterative Prisoner's Dilemma, you develop what's called a long shadow of the future, and institutions can contribute to that long shadow of the future. So educating for institutions, for thinking in broader than transactional terms, is a crucial role. So you
2: talked also, I think it was in the context of education, but maybe not, of truth-telling,
4: lying, and deception. Did that come under this category? It's interesting because it touches all three That Roosevelt told a number of very big lies. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, he said that Greer attacked a German U-boat rather than the way round, which was a lie. But he did that for a purpose, which was to try to rouse the American people out of isolationism to seeing the threat that Hitler posed. There's a big difference between that and telling if the Washington Post is only half correct, that Trump Mm -hmm. told 15,000 lies in his first 1,000 days. Let's discount that by two-thirds there's a huge difference between saying, I wanted Roosevelt to tell a lie because I thought Hitler was a real threat. I didn't want Trump to tell 15,000 lies or even 5,000.
2: Well, there's nothing to, there's nothing you can say to defend Trump's multiple
4: obvious lies. Well, it debases the, the currency. Yeah, it <laughs> does. But,
2: but just stay on Roosevelt for a second. How do you judge, this is a hard question, I think. How do you judge a leader in a democracy who tells the people a lie to achieve some greater end? Do you
4: measure that? By consequences, alone? yes, yeah. yeah. You have to you have to say there. Are, there, I make a distinction in the book between what I call self regarding lies and other regarding lies. A self regarding lie is like Trump's lie about the size of the uh, uh, crowds at his inaugural, and other regarding lies, what Roosevelt was doing when he said the that the American ship was attacked when in fact it was the other way around, and sometimes I think you justify that by consequences. And what would
2: where were the Gulf of Tonkin resolutions? Well, representations of uh, the Gulf of Tonkin? Yeah, now,
4: Joe, and the Gulf of Tonkin resolution is very interesting because there it was an other-regarding lie. Johnson wanted to get a basically a blank check from the Congress on Vietnam, but it turned out by very bad consequences.
2: Yeah. And, the, and the last question on the on the criteria, what is the role of the dark arts of foreign policy, covert action, stealth, warfare, electronic surveillance, things like that.
4: Oh, I think you, I mean, obviously you have to have intelligence. You have to have uh, covert intelligence. Uh, the question about covert action it becomes difficult because there you wind up judging it in part by consequences. But often you don't have a very good sense of the consequences and you don't also don't have very good procedural checks on it. And the net result is you wind up uh, with things that look good in the short run but have bad run effects. I mean, Eisenhower I rank highly in general, uh, but his overthrow of the, or uh, helping to overthrow the Shah in uh, Iran and then or Mosaddeq in Iran and then restore the Shah, and uh, his overthrow of Arbenz in Guatemala, had long run consequences which were pretty bad. I mean, you could make a case that if you'd allow those. Nationalistic revolutions to go through a normal evolution, uh, we'd be better placed with Guatemala and Iran today.
2: But on the other hand, one of the reasons that he turned, I think, to covert action, is he was worried about too much of a peacetime military buildup, too large a use of military force, worries about the garrison state. So these trade-offs are very tricky.
4: Oh no, they definitely are, and and I, uh, you know, essentially, with all these judgments, you wind up balancing. A lot of different factors. It's not as it's not as though they're clear cut. You put them through this this chopping machine, and it all turns out easily. Henry Kissinger once said, "The hardest calls were the ones that are in the fifty-one forty-nine area." And when you balance up these scorecards, you get an awful lot of forty-one fifty-nines.
2: Mm-hmm. So let's turn to some of your uh, judgments. So you, it, it's really an extraordinary. It's a great book because, in addition to establishing this framework, which is difficult to manage. Uh, you apply it and you basically give us a pretty robust history of U.S. foreign policy in each presidency from FDR to Trump. Um, So it's, I mean, I learned a lot. I was reminded of a lot. And then doing the analysis on top of it is really great. So let's just take a few examples. You give George H.W. Bush pretty high marks. And I read somewhere that this surprised you a little bit.
4: That's right. Well, I had been involved in, in the Dukakis campaign, so I'd done my best to prevent uh, George H.W. Bush uh, becoming president, and yet when I wrote this book, uh, he came out on top. So uh, I was wrong. <laughs> and what, I mean,
2: what in general, what were the characteristics? I mean, you don't have well, to go through all six factors. But what, was the, Bush, what was the characteristic George H.W. Bush approach?
4: Well, Bush had both extraordinary emotional intelligence, which he probably, people say, got from his mother, and, hmm. and contextual intelligence, which came from a long career of working in international positions. And a good example is this is when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, there was a great clamor, Bill Safar and others said, you know, you've got to really show that this shows democracy works and so forth. And Bush said, I'm not going to dance on the wall. I've got to negotiate with Gorbachev and I'm not going to put him in a corner and embarrass him. And that's right. And that's what led to essentially the end of the Cold War with not a shot fired in Germany inside NATO. That was an extraordinary performance.
2: And on the low end of the, uh, I would say, failed presidents in foreign policy, I think
4: LBJ comes out pretty bad. Johnson did. And what's ironic is that in domestic policy, I think he was something of a hero. Some people say he did more for African Americans than any president since Lincoln. But he really had extraordinary contextual intelligence for domestic policy. He had terrible contextual intelligence for international affairs and a weak emotional IQ. Uh, And the net effect of that was that he he really wound up creating a a huge tragedy. I mean, 58,000 American deaths and God knows how many Vietnamese deaths. Um, For what purpose? If they analyzed this in terms of a checkerboard instead of dominoes, they would have said that, We could come out very well with this with a a communist Vietnam, which would balance a communist China as it does today.
2: This may be an unfair question, but how do you judge the failure in Vietnam, which you attribute to LBJ, with George W. Bush's failure in Iraq? I mean, those are both catastrophic for U.S. foreign policy. Well, I
4: think Vietnam had many fathers, I mean, and... and, um, Eisenhower put in some troops uh Kennedy had about 16,000 but only his advisors johnson just blew it wide open 565,000 so johnson shared the the causation the view of the domino theory and so forth with others bush i think took this more, you know, he, well, he shared it with members of his administration, but uh, I don't think you say that it was also the fault of uh, his predecessor, Clinton, or Clinton's predecessor, his father. I mean, this idea that, uh, that the invasion of Iraq was going to democratize the Middle East and thereby get at the roots of terrorism just showed a real, lack of due diligence and contextual intelligence so I think I think there's a case where the culpable negligence is more he owns more of it isn't it amazing in retrospect that we kind of went down that path? well it is I mean it and and the and you know the question of what we did and why is a big puzzle I, I mean I there are some people who like to say Bush lied and people died I don't I don't see it that way I think yeah. Bush had illusions and people died. Yeah. That's a case where perhaps he was too moralistic in his intentions. Right.
2: Okay, you were pretty kind to Barack Obama.
4: Um, I thought,
2: you know, when I was reading the analysis before you got mm-hmm. to the scorecard, I thought you were pretty critical. And then I get to the
4: scorecard and you judged him pretty well. Could you explain your... your well, I think, I, I think the major thing where Obama made a major, the big mistake was not using force against uh, Assad. And because he had declared that he would, and then he had a he had a bad effect on credibility, not just in the Middle East but globally. So I think that was was one of his biggest failures. He he didn't follow through on that. But if you look at what Obama did in terms of China, where he got. China from a position where we in China were at loggerheads at the Copenhagen UN Conference in 2009 to jointly agreeing to the Paris Accords in 2015. That's a major accomplishment. And uh, there's an open question, which is whether the agreement they reached in 2015 on on cyber theft for commercial reasons, I don't know, what the, some people say that might have worked or held up. It did. I mean, it's obviously been broken now, but it's been broken uh, since the since 2016, since Trump uh, came in. I don't know whether that would have worked or not. But but at the same time, Obama was willing to send freedom of navigation operations through the South China Sea. So he wasn't he wasn't just kowtowing, towing. He was, but he was making efforts to adapt to the rise of a new power. And sort of push back on them in some cases and uh, try to find a common ground in others. So i that's, I think, probably why I gave him a higher score. But I, I do think his, his biggest flaw was that on the Middle East, uh, he, he basically didn't follow through.
2: But can I ask you about that? Because that was... I believe Libya came before then. That's right. And he had come to regret Libya quite a lot. That's true. Libya had uh, turned, you know, he had kind of got pulled into that, I think he thought. And then it turned out to be that once again, we were able to remove the dictator from power, but the after party turned out to be very problematic. And I think I mean, he said that, I, mean, I think that it's pretty clear he was just not clear that we were going to do better on balance by using force in Syria. So I want to ask you about that and also to talk about, there's a lot of, as you acknowledge, implicit counterfactual analysis right. going on. I think there's, when you say that that was a mistake, you're assuming that it would have had on balance good effects rather than on balance bad effects if we had used force in Syria. So could you talk about how you think well, about that? Well, I think,
4: I think starting with Libya... Obama um, handled the Libyan uh, intervention badly. In other words, he used the responsibility to protect as the justification. And he got a Chapter 7 resolution uh, from the UN Security Council, uh, which said defend the people in Benghazi who are threatened by Gaddafi. But he allowed mission creep to occur, and he it become regime change. And then after regime change, which meant that the Chinese and the Russians would never do another R2P under Chapter 7 again, so that meant Syria was doomed, uh, they failed to follow through in Libya. I mean, if they made that mess, they should have put in a much bigger UN peacekeeping force or something. So they they basically mishandled Libya and then treated Libya as a lesson don't get caught in the same situation. So I think when you put the two of them together, it's uh, not a success.
2: And how do you? But how do you do the counterfactual? In, in, in criticizing his judgment after, to be sure, declaring a red line not to use force, and there were all sorts of complicated reasons, at least apparently, why he did that, including lack of support at home. He was worried he couldn't mm-hmm. get congressional support. Isn't there an implicit counterfactual judgment there? Oh, absolutely. You? And yeah. so could you explain how, how you think
4: about that? Well, on the, I mean, the counterfactual on on Syria was that Obama felt that he wouldn't have congressional support. He had support overseas from the French, but not the British, where Parliament had, had backed away uh, from Cameron on it. And uh, he then had this arrangement with Putin that, that Russia and the U.S. would remove, using the U.N., would remove chemical weapons. And it's probably true that they remove more chemical weapons than an airstrike would have destroyed. So in that sense, the first counterfactual is, imagine that uh, uh, he had an airstrike and you asked what was the effect on the weapons and on Assad. You could say he did better by the solution he had. But it was not taking into account the broader global effects of credibility. And so the many countries read this as a uh, paper tiger, you know. And I think that, I don't think he thought through or thought hard enough about that counterfactual. How is it going to affect China and Asia, for example? Um, however, there's another counterfactual you have to weigh, which is Obama was also worried that if he started this, and he wound up with regime change right. in right. Syria, and he got rid of Assad, would he wind up with ISIS taking over, or another and the, Iraq in some way, or another Libya? Yeah, or another Libya. So, in that sense, it's a, it's a hard call. I mean, I don't, I I think he did think that counterfactual through, but I don't think he came out right in the sense that just removing Assad wouldn't have done it. I would have had a limited strike against the weapons, even though I didn't get ready many his weapons, as a signal that norms like the chemical weapons treaty shouldn't be ignored, and that our word, once we say that's a red line, is worth something. Okay, this brings us
2: finally to the current president, Donald Trump, and you're quite clear that it's too early to make any firm mm-hmm. judgments. If I summarized your chapter, I would say, and you can correct this, poor on most fronts, but... Maybe the China, standing up to China in an aggressive way, was necessary, even if the means weren't necessarily the best. So maybe he's going to win some points on that. But for the most part, you're not impressed with this one. Yeah, oh, I moral, think he, moral for him,
4: it, we, again, we really, it's much too early to know. But I think that uh, he got China's attention, and um, he uh, and we'll have to see how that plays out. The so-called phase one trade agreement is is not much. Um and so we don't know whether it's gonna to get to the heart of the of the issues. Um so I'd give him that. And I also would give him on I think I rate him reasonably on the use of force, which is that there has been a degree of proportion and discrimination, and his limited attacks on Syrian chemical causes was I think what about the level Obama should have done.
2: But you completed the chapter before the Somali strike. But the Somali strike came afterwards,
4: and I think that's a case where, for reasons I mentioned earlier, he lost uh, his sense of proportion.
2: Right. So my last question is about, at the dawn of the Trump administration, there was a giant spurt of writing about the rules-based international order. There were people who said, it's over with that Trump represents the end of the rules-based international order. There are people who defended it. You gave a qualified defense, I think it's fair to say, of the rules-based international order. So I'm just wondering, I have no idea if this is true or not, how much of this book was a response to Trump who and a response to this this conception that, or this idea that the rules-based international order is either defunct or not worth defending?
4: It, was this in part? Well, it's part in, in part, but it, the book actually has roots that go back much deeper. I mean, I'd never even heard heard of Donald Trump, but not in the political sense uh, when I was thinking about this. And I think there was a lot of talk about the end of the liberal international order. And what I say in the book is you ought to drop the word liberal. It's a difference between a liberal international order, which is Wilsonian and which tries to promote democracy. And we ought to realize that when you have a great power like China, they don't want to be liberal. And there's not much you can do about that, in the short run at least. But rules-based, there still is a a role. And going back to that point about Axelrod and institutions and the long shadow of the future, the Chinese have an interest in certain rules-based dimensions. And climate is probably one of the most dramatic ones. So I think we don't want to, uh, as we get rid of the illusions about the liberal international order, that's not the same as a rules-based international order in which you begin to get cooperation in the production of global public goods. That is whatever I was trying to make a distinction.
2: That's great, Joe. Thank you very much. This book is an excellent book on many levels. It's like a lot of great books. It is both accessible to the general reader, but it's also theoretically very sophisticated. So both I think it's fair to say that both... um, novices and experts can learn from it. Congratulations. Thank you.
4: I tried to write for real people.
3: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Joseph Nye for coming on the show. If you have a second, please share the Lawfare Podcast on social media and give us a five-star rating and review wherever you found us. You can also purchase Lawfare swag at our online store, www.thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.